0: Son of God Sing hallelujah Son of God They say sometimes you win some Sometimes you lose some Right now Right now, I'm losing man stood on the stage night after night, reminding the broken, it'll be all right. Right now, oh right now, I just can't. Oh, you're tuning? Okay. It's easy to see, <coughs> nothing
1: Good morning and welcome to Cypress Bible Church. We're the Matsons. I'm Sonya. And I'm Mark. It's our pleasure to welcome you this morning for worship. Whether you're joining us in person or online, we're thrilled that you're joining us today. CBC is a church made up of imperfect people who believe in beginning where you are and becoming more like Jesus. The way to accomplish this is summed up in three words, gather, grow, and go. We gather for life-changing worship, We grow through life-changing truth. We go in life-changing mission. So no matter where you are in your faith, we hope that you will consider joining us in that journey.
2: Before we begin our time of worship, we want to draw your attention to a couple of important announcements. This morning begins our 30 days of prayer. Each Monday, we will send out a video on our prayer theme for that week. Then each day, an email will provide you with a scripture to read and a reminder to pray. We want our faith to rest in the power of God, not in the wisdom of men. We also want to remind you of our Wednesday night men's ministry series called Created for Relationship. In this series, men will focus on the many relationships in their lives with God, with themselves, with their spouse, children, neighbors, at work, and more. This nine-week study begins at 6.30 p.m. every Wednesday night and we'll meet in the chapel. One of our CBC pastors will be the guest presenter for each of these nights. There is a meal that is served each week before the study begins. Please sign up at the Welcome Center today or contact Brian Carroll at the church office. Later in our worship service, we will be observing the Lord's table. For those worshiping with us in person, you should have seen tables as you came in that have the communion elements. If you did not pick one of these up, you can do so now. For those worshiping online, You'll want to gather the elements at home so we can all participate in this special time of remembering the Lord Jesus and the great sacrifice he has made for all of us.
1: Our call to worship this morning is based on perhaps one of the most widely known passages in all of scripture, John 3:16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Worship is our response to God for all He is, all He has done, and all He continues to do. It is God who called us into this conversation with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. It is God who reached out to us and we respond. Ponder that for just a second. The Almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God, the Creator of the universe, reaches out to us. All are welcome to come to Him. His love extends to the ends of the earth, and we can say to every human being, God loves you, and this is how He loves you. He gave His Son to die for you.
2: So what is your response to Him today? Listen to David's response in Psalm 106:1. 1. Read it aloud with us. Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His His love endures forever. forever. Let us lift our praise to the one who has reached out to us and respond to him in worship. We're going to sing that song again that you heard as you came in the building this morning. Let's stand together and say, God so loved.
3: comfort than knowing that God's love for us surpasses all understanding, and that He would give His one and only Son to take the punishment that we deserve, that we may have eternal life through Him. But so often, in spite of our eternal hope in Christ Jesus, the Christian life seems to continue to go through storms of the soul, seasons where it is difficult to find peace despite our best efforts. I think of the disciples on the boat in the middle of a huge storm. The lightning crashed, the thunder roared, and the prevailing winds tossed them about like ragdolls. They shouted, teacher, don't you care if we drown? How often do we say the same things to God? Jesus, don't you care about my stress? Don't you care about my fears? Don't you care about my struggles? Don't you care about me? I assure you, he cares for you. He loves you deeply. In this account, in Matthew chapter eight, we are reminded that Jesus stood and rebuked the storm. He said, quiet, be still. This passage demonstrates a number of things, but two very important things stand out. He loves his people and his amazing power to care for them. So, do not worry. Do not be afraid. He loves and cares for you, and his power can calm the raging storm, cause even the strongest mountain to tremble, or the darkness to flee. For God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. Thanks be to God.
0: Bring it all to peace. The storm surrounding me, let it break. At your name, still call the sea to still the rage in me to still every wave. At your name, Jesus, Jesus. Darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus. You silence me, Jesus, Jesus. You made the darkness.
4: i mm-hmm.
2: times of difficulty uncertainty struggle perhaps the world around us seems to be in a perpetual state of chaos but friends make no mistake we can rest because God is sovereign he reigns over all heaven and earth and nothing is a surprise to him nothing is beyond his power or his reach rest easy for God is in control
1: For those who are in Christ Jesus, we are assured in Romans 8 verses 38 and 39 as the Apostle Paul reminds us that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons. Neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. How did he demonstrate his unending love? It was nailed to the cross for the whole world to see. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The power of God's love was displayed on the cross.
2: As Pastor John mentioned in his message last week, 1 Corinthians 1, eight says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Mighty, Mighty is, is the power, the power of, of the cross. cross.
0: Die man, raise him up to life again. What can heal a wounded soul? What can make us white as snow? What can fill the emptiness? What can mend our brokenness? Our brokenness, mighty. Oh Wonderful is the whole.
5: When I was about eight years old, I witnessed to my uh, neighborhood friend, I don't remember his name, we'll call him Billy, my uh, attempt to witness to Billy about Jesus. And somehow or other, right off the bat, we got sidetracked into talking about heaven. And... uh Billy was, I guess, interested in heaven. And I definitely wanted to attract him to what a wonderful concept that was. And somewhere along the way, I might have mentioned all the ice cream you can eat. Um, Don't know where that idea came from. But uh, ended up not really talking very much about Jesus to my friend Billy. Kind of a fail. In... uh, High school, an evangelist came to our city. Spent a week or so in the Broome County Arena, and uh, one of those nights, I brought along my friend Tommy Holmes. I think my brother invited Kevin Holmes as well, and I figured the evangelist could tell Tommy what I had not told Tommy. Turned out what the evangelist talked about was coming war with Russia and the Antichrist and that within five years there would be no paper currency and he talked about the rapture and attacked by name preachers who disagreed with him. And when it was over I turned to Tommy and said, what would you think? And he said, I think that guy's crazy. A number of years after that I was pastoring my first church. It was in a resort community and uh, had a lot of, uh, a number, I don't know about a lot, but a number of pastors and church leaders who would vacation in that area and attend the, our church, especially during the summer. And it was my practice in the morning service to preach through a book of the Bible and an evening service to preach through a different book of the Bible and teaching Sunday school from a different book of the Bible and Wednesday night Bible study on another book of the Bible. I was really into the Bible, which is good. That first year, one of the visiting pastors or church leaders sat through our morning and evening service and afterwards took me aside and he said, John, you said some good things there, but you did not preach Christ. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I I think your talk would have worked pretty well in a mosque or a temple or at the Rotary Club. You didn't preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I recognized that he was right. And from that moment on, what my seminary training and my experience had not previously drilled into me, God, by his spirit, using this man, did. No matter what book of the Bible I'm preaching through, it's going to point to Jesus. So, whether it's from a platform or in a personal conversation at church, at school, with friends, family, or strangers, how do we talk about Jesus? Whether you're a pastor or simply a follower of Jesus, that's a pretty important question to deal with. And that's what we're going to see today as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians. The world-class city of Corinth was an economic powerhouse, and it attracted people from all over the Roman Empire. They came to uh, see the sports, to be dazzled by the education, the art, the wealth, the sexual pleasure, philosophy, culture, commerce. The population was about 700,000 in that day and was a melting pot of ethnicities and religions. Paul, the apostle, arrived in that city in 50 A.D. and preached the gospel. And people responded to that good news about Jesus and believed, and Paul formed a church there. And he taught them for 18 months. And then Paul left this young church behind to continue to preach the good news in other cities and plant churches there. And over the next few years, the Corinthian church sort of descended into a bit of a mess. There was conflict and division, sexual sin, theological misunderstanding, spiritual pride, and selfishness. And they got more concerned about impressing their culture than with preaching the gospel. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians to address and correct those problems. Hence the title of this series, Corrected. And now as we begin chapter 2, we learn how Christians must talk about Jesus. And I want to draw this together at the end to show you what that means about resting in the power of God. Resting in God's power. But uh, here in these first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I want to point out four principles to you about talking of Jesus, four principles that Paul speaks of here that are applicable to me, to you, to everyone who names the name of Jesus. The first principle is this, we must not rely on flashy packaging or manipulative messaging when talking about Jesus. You say, Well, that's a mouthful. Where does that come from? Well, that comes first of all from verse one of chapter two. Paul says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. Now appreciate that the Corinthians were used to philosophers and sophists who worked to impress the audience. And so these speakers developed rhetorical skill and a flamboyant style and communicated an air of superiority over their listeners so that they could draw a crowd and impress them. And Paul reminds them, hey, when I showed up in Corinth a few years back, that's not how I came to you. I I didn't do any of that. There was no eloquence. Uh, the, the Greek word for eloquence here is euporoxae, and it, it refers to lofty, or we might say highfalutin speech. I, I didn't come to you with some highfalutin speech, Paul says. Uh, something that's aimed at impressing and dazzling the listener. That's what euporoxae means. It's not me, he said, when I came to you. It's this desire of content taking a backseat to style so that you can impress an audience. Paul also says he didn't use wisdom. And I say, well, you mean he was using stupidity? No, uh, throughout First Corinthians, Paul differentiates between human wisdom and godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is very much needed, human wisdom uh, not. It's from the world. That sophistry was an attempt to persuade by using manipulative arguments and modulating the voice. That's what human wisdom did, superior wisdom. Paul says, that's not what I was out to do. I wasn't trying to attract an audience in either of these ways with eloquence or some superior wisdom. And and then he repeats this in verse 4 when he says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. So so that's where I'm developing this, this principle of we must not rely on flashy packaging or manipulative messaging when we're talking about Jesus. Now, both the word message and preaching have an article and a modifier, meaning he's talking about two different things here. What's he referring to? Well, the message is personal conversations, and the preaching is his public presentation. And so Paul says, you know, whether I'm talking to somebody over coffee and just having a chat or I'm teaching a crowd, I use plain speech and I behave with humility. Uh, He didn't show off at all. He avoided any sense of self-promotion and exploitation and attempt to appease a crowd, draw a crowd. Now, by the way, there's no news presenter or preacher or reporter or anyone who is free from bias, right? No, no one, not a one of us is free from bias. It's the extent to which we use that bias in a wrong way and, and allow it to have too much part of what we say to color what we're trying to do and to become manipulative or flashy. That's where it gets wrong. And, and, and by the way... Um, it, it you look at the most highly rated cable news shows, and what's disturbing is that whatever listed at whatever month it is, the majority, usually the top five of those most highly watched news shows are not news shows as much as they are uh, personality opinion shows from all and so even the the top 15 i think at least 10 maybe 12 of those are those kinds of shows now uh, and and the reason that uh, we get concerned about it, not because those are really aimed more at entertainment they're more aimed at, at drawing a crowd they're, they aim to win viewer and sway opinion through exaggeration and controversy and entertainment and propaganda and fabrication and sensationalism and shock and and pretentiousness and mock outrage and and these kind of folks Uh, become celebrities and wealthy in their own right and and it's if you know that and you recognize that that's all fine and good but if you then put this on the same level with all other news then that's troubling and i would say uh, that these are the sophists of our day and more than a few in fact i would say many many preachers follow that same route many many follow that same route and so anything that draws attention away from Jesus or distracts from Jesus, is out of bounds. And, and aiming at pleasing an audience that, that's the, the flashy packaging, or uh, aim at entertaining, that manipulating the message is, is, has no place when talking about Jesus. That's the first principle. Second principle is we must make the cross central when talking about Jesus. Well, John, where do you get that? Well, that's verse 2. For I resolved, Paul said, to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, you must remember that Paul's a highly educated man, and he debated the Epicureans and the Stoics, the two top Greek philosophies of that day in his world. You see that in Acts chapter 17. But when Paul became a Christian, it wasn't that he ditched his education, but he said he considered these achievements uh, to to be so much cow manure in comparison to knowing Jesus. He says that in Philippians 3.8. Paul's not anti-intellectual, he's not anti-science, he doesn't condemn true learning and careful preparation or passionate delivery. What he does is he condemns anything and everything that gets in the way of the clear preaching of the crucified Christ. They say, Why the crucifixion? What about the resurrection? Well, it's not that the resurrection is any less important, but you must appreciate that uh, it is the Corinthians who are trying to downplay the cross, they are trying to ignore the cross which is central, which is critical, and is going on in our world today. You can get people far more uh, interested in Easter and Christmas in terms of its religious, than you can in terms of the death of Jesus. Crucifixion. And yet that is crucial. See, of all the problems that the church in Corinth had, the underlying issue was neglecting the cross. Why? It was an embarrassment. Crucifixion was for the scum. It was dehumanizing. And for this idea that God would come to this earth uh, for execution on a cross, how could that message connect with, with their world? That's what the Corinthians were concerned about. It was crude. It was primitive. It was embarrassing. And I would say that it remains embarrassing in our culture today. You know, when a Roman wanted to curse a fellow Roman... Uh, he he said, I am which means go to the cross or be crucified. That's what, it was a swear word. You go be crucified. That's how degrading and dehumanizing it was. And so the Corinthians, they didn't want to talk about this message. And Paul says, you can't talk about Jesus and skip the cross. And he said, well, when he says, I decide, I resolved, I decided to know nothing except this when I was with you, it means that Not only what he said, but how he said it was wrapped up in the cross. His entire approach and appearance and conduct was settled on Christ. Now several years ago, that spotlight up there, the two of them on that cross were out. And I had uh, several people come to me and say, Why did you turn the spotlights out? And uh, are you de-emphasizing the cross, someone said. Well, no, they blew out. And uh, you notice how easy it is to change light bulbs around here. You have to rent heavy equipment and move pews, and and that one's no better. And so I think it took two, maybe three weeks before we were able to change it. But several people were very concerned that, that we were in some way taking... The light off the cross, that's understandable. See, the real concern is whether or not the cross is preached, not whether we illuminate a symbolic representation that has no place in Scripture. That's irrelevant to whether the cross is preached. And so let me put it this way. When you start focusing on how to have a successful marriage, You can easily fail to preach the cross. You say, well, how? Well, it might not be God's will that you have a happy marriage. Did you ever think of that? It it might be that you endure the pain and the shame of a terrible marriage and learn what it means to suffer with Christ. What it means to love and serve Jesus as you endure an unhappy relationship and you live to honor Jesus in the middle of that pain and difficulty. And when you focus on living like a champion, you can fail to preach the cross. How? God's will might not be for you to enjoy success. In fact, there might be a lot of struggle and failure and heartbreak and loss. And the message of the cross is that even in the darkest defeat, the deepest pain, the greatest loss, that's part of God's sovereign plan. The fact that Jesus would go to the cross and suffer so horribly is proof of that. See, the triumph of God is not shown through victory, it's thrown, shown through loss. That's why we must preach the cross. That's why the cross must always be central when talking about Jesus. we're out of his great love, God the Father sent his eternal Son into this world to be the Savior. The perfect Jesus became the perfect sacrifice for sin. Beaten and humiliated like a common criminal, he was executed on the cross. His blood poured out, paying the ultimate penalty for sin so that all who take shelter in Jesus alone would be redeemed. The power of God for salvation is in Jesus, who was crucified, dead and buried, and who rose from the grave on the third day, defeating sin and death for all who trust in him alone. And any sermon, any Bible lesson... Any spiritual conversation that leaves out the cross fails absolutely, no matter how insightful, inspiring, or incredible it seems. Martin Luther is known for saying, Crux probate omina, which means the cross is the test of everything. The cross is the test of everything. That's important when you're talking about Jesus. Third principle. We must not hide our own flaws and insecurities when talking about Jesus. Well, where does that come from? That's verse 3. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling, Paul says. When Paul showed up at Corinth, he appeared weak and fearful. He was not filled with self-confidence. Now, he did have confidence in the Gospel, but his own style and his own personality was not confident of drawing crowd worthy. And his weakness was that he seems to be unimpressive to look at and unimpressive to listen to. And some of that was intentional. And Paul was in poor health, it appears. And he had very little money, we know. And was a guy who worked with his hands to earn a living, which was not very well respected by the elites in that society. And Paul arrived in Corinth after suffering some pretty awful experiences, pretty rough. You read Acts 16 through 18, and you see that Paul had been beaten and imprisoned in one place. And at the next city, he escaped a mob who was looking to tear him to pieces. And then agitators followed him wherever he went, trying to stir up people to take Paul out. And so by the time he got to Corinth, he was already feeling pretty rough. And then he gets to Corinth, and he's being threatened there too. Pretty scary. And then the Lord spoke to him in a vision one night early in his time at Corinth. And the Lord said, don't be afraid. You keep on speaking. Don't be silent. Keep on speaking. I am with you. And so Paul stayed for 18 months. Scared, beat up, troubled. Troubled. But he stayed for 18 months and preached the gospel. And, and he was quite a contrast to all the other polished orators of his day. One of those was Traculus, who, who was called the greatest speaker of all his contemporaries. One writer described Traculus this way. His lofty stature, in other words, he was tall, where Paul apparently was short, uh, The fire in the eye, the the dignity of his brow, the excellence of his gesture, coupled with a voice that surpassed all I have ever heard, that was this guy. And then there's Paul. In contrast to these kinds of celebrities, Paul was shaky, worn out, and afraid. But through his frailty, the power of the cross burst through. See, those who present themselves as perfect, polished, and problem-free will not represent Jesus well. That's not what he's called us to do. And more than a few preachers and Christians do that sort of thing. But that communicates superiority. And that turns attention to the person. About a dozen or so years ago, I got a message, it might have been an email, it might have been a note, I don't recall, from somebody I did not know who had been attending the church where I was pastoring for a little bit of time. And the note said something to this effect. It said, I wish I had your faith. I wish I had spiritual passion as strong as yours. And there was a moment where I thought, well, I I wish that for you too. And then I realized how I was failing. I was failing to communicate what a work in progress I am. I was failing to communicate how weak and frail I am, that I'm a sinner saved by grace, that I'm in the process of becoming, becoming more like Jesus as is every other follower of Jesus. And how wrong it was to give anybody a sense of superiority. That's what Paul was, was fighting against. When talking about Jesus, we must We must be authentic about our weaknesses and our failings. Fourth principle, we must demonstrate the Spirit's power when talking about Jesus. John, what's this about? Well, that's how Paul ends this section, verse 4 and 5. My message, he says, and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So whether in private conversation or public preaching, what Paul said and how he said it reflected the power of the Spirit. His mannerisms, his words, his attitude, his appearance were in line with the Spirit. So we can say it this way. He was characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In other words, all those words that were used to describe the presidential debate, that's exactly how he reacted. So what does it look like when you're talking about Jesus in the Spirit's power? What does that look like? Well, it looks like people get saved. And it looks like believers get encouraged and equipped. And it looks like people's lives changing. Because Paul demonstrated the Spirit's power, he didn't get more and more popular. No, more and more people were drawn to Jesus. And you see, that's my concern. I I must always evaluate, and I constantly do, am I speaking in the Spirit's power? Where's the evidence of that? Are people getting saved? Are lives being changed? Are believers being equipped? It's a tough question. See, the reality is that the foundation of your faith must rest on the power of God in Christ crucified or it's going to crumble. See, see that, that's what, what he says here in this verse. You notice that the power is mentioned twice. He, he's, he's speaking in that power. Why? So that the faith of his hearers are going to rest in the power of God, not in the wisdom of men or women. Because if that happens, then your faith's not going to make it. If your faith is based on clever arguments and slick presentations or human authority or personality, your faith is going to crumble. That's why I've I've had the privilege of sharing the gospel to refugees in Europe and migrant workers in Greece and villagers in Thailand and Nepal and the destitute in Haiti. And you know what I've been concerned about the entire time with every single gospel presentation, whether it's to a crowd or to a person one-on-one through a translator? I've been concerned that what they want and are attracted to is the Western way of life and not Jesus. Because here I am, some rich American who's taken the money to fly over to their part of the world and sit down where they are and tell them about Jesus, and yet I get very concerned that what they want is the money and the power and not the person of Christ. And that's so dangerous and deadly. So how you talk about Jesus is extremely important. Whether it's from a podium or in a coffee shop or through a Zoom meeting or on the golf course or over text with friends, with family, with strangers. When you talk about Jesus, don't rely on flashy packaging or manipulative messaging. Make the cross central. Don't hide your flaws and weaknesses and insecurities, but demonstrate the Spirit's power. Why? So that your faith and the faith of those who hear you rests on the one firm foundation, which is the gospel of God in Christ. Now, are you concerned about loved ones who don't know Jesus? Uh, Are there people in your life that you're very concerned about their spiritual condition? I, I would just encourage you to stop harping on their behavior. Stop calling out their sin. Stop pointing about their failure and talk about the crucified one. Because that's the only answer. The crucified one. And so you might be going at this from a change your behavior standpoint. Or change your attitude standpoint. When you need to go through it. Jesus went to the cross. And died for you. Sin point. You know, every week I, uh, I prepare and pray and agonize. I've obviously never given birth to a baby, but I have given birth to a kidney stone. And let me tell you, there's a lot of similarity between giving birth to a sermon and a kidney stone. And then when I've done all that, maybe 15 or so hours out of my week, I sit here in that pew and I pray as I worship. And I'm singing, loud, probably too loud for some. Last week, apparently, I sang a duet with Blythe at the end of the close of the service. and I was doing harmony with Blythe, and then the soundboard said, well, enough of that, and turned me off, which is good. But I'm sitting here worshiping, and but I'm praying, and I'm asking God, speak through me with power. Speak through me with power, your power, and, you know, every once in a while somebody tells me that happened, but mostly I have no idea. No idea. But, you see, my job is not to make the message powerful. My job is to make sure it's about Jesus. God brings the power through the crucified one. And we have the privilege of boasting about that right now, as we remember his death for us on the cross. Let us together boast in Jesus as we celebrate with the bread and the cup. Do you understand this morning that this expression, taking the bread, representing the body of Christ that bore the weight of our sin, and the cup... uh, Representing his blood spilled for us, paying the price for our sin. That these are not simply symbols in the sense of this is just something we do. This is to remind us where our salvation rests. Not in human wisdom, but in the power of God through the crucified one. There is nothing more important in your life or mine than remembering the one to whom you owe everything. The sacrifice of our Savior Jesus out of the love of the Father. And So, as you take these elements before we eat and drink together, let me pray. Lord, I think I have some understanding of how unworthy I am to be a recipient of your grace and goodness. But I know I don't fully appreciate just how unworthy I am and how holy you are. So Lord, forgive my sin and failure and weakness and inability to grasp how wide and deep and high and long is your great love. And may that be for every one of us who names the name of Jesus right now, that we would be overwhelmed with your grace and mercy, that we would be awed by your love and holiness and power, and that as we eat and drink together We would remember where our value comes from and where our salvation rests, not in us, but in your power. Through Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he blessed it. And he said to his disciples that night, as he says to you and I right here and now, take and eat in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup, the symbol of his precious blood that would be poured out on the cross just a short time later. And he said, this is the new covenant of my blood, spilled for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Thanks be to God. Today, we begin this 30-day period, invite you to join us in that of prayer. And this morning and this week, we're focusing on the honor of God, focusing on the fact that our salvation comes from His power, rests in His power, not our own. So today, this week, would you take some time, moments even, to reflect and focus on that and give Him praise, for He is worthy. As you leave this morning, I would encourage you to, to take your communion cup and to re- place it in one of the receptacles at the door as you leave. Not the offering bag, or that's a different thing entirely. i appreciate if you would take a moment to help us in that. Now receive this word of benediction from Revelation chapter 1. Now to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.
0: The. When I cherish the